if you can't go to the market with some sexy renders and some some great you know, usable floor plans, you might be in strife. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, listener, and welcome to this episode of the Property Developer Podcast, a show dedicated to helping you take your developing business to the next level. Thanks for listening, and I trust you are well. Today, I'm talking design with architect Dominic Serantonio from Sarah Stribley Architects, Design is such an integral element of property development and can often be the difference between getting a planning approval or not. Plus, it can also affect demand for your product and influence how you are perceived in the market. I ended up engaging Dom to help me with my project after we had trouble getting our proposed scheme through council and he did a great job of coming up with a terrific design that council supported and we got our approval and I dubbed him The Weapon. I learned a couple of good tips during our conversation around how to qualify if your designer is right for you and your project, a great way to negotiate on fees, and why good design makes a difference. I started out by asking Don the obligatory question about what food he would eat until he was ill. Chocolate. Really? Yeah. Any kind of chocolate? Just plain old chocolate. Dark chocolate? Milk chocolate? Milk. Dairy milk plain. I could eat three blocks of it and... Be fine. Really? Yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> so how many until you were sick then? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It gives me energy. It allows me to keep going. <laughs> Is that the expensive Swiss stuff? Or no, 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 no. Just plain old Cadbury's. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always good to find out yeah. what, the, what yeah, people's wow. little treats are. First thing that comes to mind. It's <laughs> probably what I want right now. <laughs> But we'll see. If you do a good interview, you might get some yeah, idea. Yeah, good. Sounds good. <laughs> now, Dom, can you tell us a little bit about your background as an architect and, and why you decided to become an architect? Yeah, sure. Mum um, was an architect. Um, grew up reading architecture magazines as opposed to I don't know, whatever whatever else on the Women's Weekly or whatever else. Yeah, so grew up with architecture, spent a lot of time with mum in her office working and whatnot and just I, th- I think grew up with a, a taste and a feel for it that really led me down a path I didn't know anyone yeah, it felt, where, anywhere else to go Did you have your own little desk and those drunk yeah, tables? Yeah I actually did my school holidays mum used to give me a little book and uh, obviously now computers have changed the way we, we do architecture but back then you used to hand draw everything obviously and, and there's a, a, a range of different symbols that you're required to know and understand to draw an architectural plan. So what does a shower look like? What does a toilet look like? What does a car look like? Moment, this little book that you know everything was kind of outlined, detailed and explained for you. So mum gave me the book and I'd just sit there drawing away all day during school holidays. So probably should have been outside kicking a football but no. <laughs> I was in there drawing. Uh, and yeah, that Obviously, you learn a bunch of stuff doing that, and you get a taste of it. And um, yeah, that's what I loved, and that was my passion, and led me down this path. So, what was it about drawing or architecture that gets your blood boiling? I think initially, just being able to create something tangible. You know, that if you look at art and, and art as a discipline, you know, you're talking about creating something turning a concept that you're thinking into something that's that's visible I suppose and of course you know art takes on the physical form you know in, in sculpture 
whether it's painting or whatever else. Architecture is quite different in a sense. It's how we live, how we use, how we operate through a space. And being able to create that is really important and, and I guess gets gets me really interested, intrigued. You know, at the start of any project, you're telling, well, how do we look at this? How do we do this? How do we, how do we think about how the... Who, who's going to be living here? Who's going to be using this space, working here, eating here? Um, you know, training here? Um, and how are they going to use the space? And how can we manipulate the areas within that space to make their experience better? And that's, that's something that's exciting to us, for sure. Yeah, it would be, particularly when it when it's done really well. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and part of the charm of, of, of architecture is seeing, seeing a drawing or an idea that then turns into a drawing and then that drawing turns into you know, a working drawing and then that working drawing turns into something that's actually tangible and it starts being constructed and you can start walking through that space and that whole experience of, of going from, from, from idea to reality is, is fascinating. It's um, really something special. Yeah, which for property developing and for property developers, I think that's a big driving yeah. force for them as well, yeah. just having something go from an idea to actual reality. Yeah. Well, look, developers have got a lot of big ideas and a lot of you know, those guys that... It's not just architects that have ideas. You know, we might be the, the instrument that allows you to get from one place to another. The developers got the same. So they, they do experience the same kind of journey. Um, you know, obviously in a different way, but um, I can see how it'd be equally as uh, you know exciting for them. Yeah, well, it's definitely a very symbiotic relationship between yeah. the designer yeah. and the developer. Yeah, of course, and and, and that, that that relationship is really important because if you if you can work well together, I think you get to, you can create some really strong synergies between you know, client and architect. Um, I think ultimately you get a better project. Uh, if you're fighting all the way along, you're just not going to get anywhere. And I think there's there, there's, there's a role to be played on both parts. Um, I think the architect needs to to listen and not be yeah, not try and drive their own agenda the whole their agenda the whole the whole way through. It's 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 more about okay, trying to get an understanding of what the developer's trying to achieve, and then being able to use that. Then yes, of course, if they want to put their own spin on it, fine, but. But you've got to work with the developer and what they're trying to achieve. And equally, the developer's got to listen to the architect as well. Um, we are the, the, the expert, I suppose. Um, but the, the developer needs to listen to the architect and not try and push, push, push all the time because there are certain things that, that will um, ultimately become a problem later down the track. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of, bit of give and take on both parts. But I think if you can get it right... It's going to be a great experience. And so, what kind of things would the developer push on, and what other, and what things would you best leave to the architect? Oh, look, there's an array of different different things. I mean, for an example, in any in any project, the developer's going to try and push the project to its boundaries to maximise the, the the yield, the potential of any project, and and that's what you should do. Um, but there will be times when you can't do something. Now, let's just say. Uh, the planning scheme calls for three levels. And I'm taking this is a really simple example, but unless I develop one to go to four levels, and we can explain to them, well, you can't go four levels, um, or you might be able to, right, because planning scheme is a guide only. If we're telling them no, 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 
to us, going, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. What that can do is it can just cause you know, what might be a, a, a six a six month planning process might turn into you know, fifteen months or twelve months, all because of one little thing. Now, I guess um, my school of thought when it comes to property development is really get in, get out. The, t- the quicker you're turning over projects, the quicker you're going to be making money. Um, it's not always about max, 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 because if, you, if you're wasting 12 months in council, well, that's 12 months where you could be working on something else. So having that as an example, I just think you know, sometimes it isn't always about yet. I mean, we'd like to think it is, but sometimes time needs to be considered a bit more. It's often the, the forgotten aspect of development. Yeah, well, it certainly ticks by pretty quickly when you're uh, yeah. either waiting for something or needing something. It goes pretty quickly. Yeah, and holding costs are always forgotten. I mean, if you're, if you're, you're sitting on a block of land that, that, that owes you, or well, you cost $5 billion for our five units, and you get repayments on, on that for 12 months that you didn't otherwise expect, that can add up pretty quick. Especially if that, that um, property's not returning any, any income through rent or whatever other method. So... Time is important, and I think, you know, and unfortunately, there's a lot of red tape in the current system, which we can all bitch and moan about, but that's the reality. Um, so adding any unnecessary aspect, which may delay the project further, I just think is just trying, you know, we should try and avoid it at all costs. So in order to establish a good relationship and or set yourself up for success with an architect... Mm-hmm. Are there things that you would suggest developers do in terms of some due diligence on an architect or questions to ask? Yeah. Or how can you lay the foundations yeah. to have that good, strong relationship? Yeah. Look, we... I can't speak for other, other architects out there, but for us, we... If I was a developer and I was choosing an architect, the first thing I'd be doing is asking them to prepare a feasibility plan. Um, we don't personally... We don't charge for that service. We would rather show our... You know, potential new clients, what we think we can do with a project. And that kind of, I guess, sets up the basis for a good relationship. I think there are a lot of great architects out there, but having a commercially minded architect when it comes to property development is incredibly important. Now, you, you'll be able to tell that quite quickly with a feasibility plan. It doesn't take long. Some architects might charge you a small fee for that, some might do it for nothing. But going through that process, I suppose that's their DD process for a developer will allow you, the developer, to understand what the architects are going to do down the track. If you're talking about a site where the developer might think they can get, I don't know, call it 10 townhouses on there, and the architect comes back with six huge ones in a, in a market where there's a, there's a very low ceiling on the product, well, you probably that, that may not be the best road to go down. You know? Whereas the architect comes back and they're talking to you about the market factors, you know, construction costs versus sales and, and what ceilings are at, you know, you might be able to do three bedrooms and it might be better to do two bedrooms because, you know, there's a, there's a certain cap in the, in, the, in the area and that that demographic of people aren't going to pay more than 800000 call it, you know. So having, going through that process and, and learning the architect to talk through the issues I think is important because uh, you want an architect who understands that. Otherwise you may be forced into a position where you, you might get lost but is that the developer's role to then guide the architect and say, no, I'd no, like no. to try and get 10 on here because that's what's no, I think for the it's, market? I think it's, it's, 
It's a case of both parties working together. You can have a developer that can be quite strong in what they want and set briefs and this is what we want, this is what we want, and that's fine. Um, and the architect can just play along with that. But quite often, the architect needs to understand the, the factors uh, because it ultimately will allow them to search for a better outcome on the site. So there'll be times when there'll be certain things the architect's working through in terms of the you know, the planning policies and whatnot and working out where you can push things and where you can't. Now, having an understanding of the market will ultimately determine where you can push and pull, um, and that's really important. It's not just a case of developer going, this is what I want, 10 townhouses, three bedrooms, five or two bedrooms, max 120 square metres, 130 square metres, or whatever it is. Um, the architect should know that stuff as well, or at least have a, a, a general understanding. Yeah. Because I think the risk is if you give the architect carte blanche to design whatever they want, the risk is they will design something that they like yeah. as opposed to yeah. something that's commercially viable and gives well, the most no, yield but, for that particular area. And that's, but that's, that's exactly my point. Uh, if you do a feasibility, if you create a feasibility process and you offer the architect, you might suggest to them, this is what we're thinking, allowed, you'll be able to tell quite quickly what... What, what to expect when you get that feasibility. And so can you just describe what that feasibility would look like? Yeah, so we, we do a number of these for our clients. Um, essentially, there'll be a couple of plans, maybe with some floor layouts on them, maybe not. Um, but essentially what, what it will describe is uh, your yield, the sizes of the dwellings, so whether they're apartments or townhouses or retail units or whatever, you know, childcare centres have big. Um, they'll describe how many bedrooms, uh, if we're doing childcare centre, how many children. And what that does is it informs the client, okay, this is what I can do. I can get X amount of you know, apartments. It's going to cost me this much to build. And they can, you know, doing a very high-level feasibility, uh, they can kind of work out what the site's worth, uh, whether it's worth doing the project um, or whether it's, it's not. Um, so that's, that's the instrument that kind of I guess, allows the developer to make an informed decision about the project and whether they want to pursue it or not. That can go further. Um, we do have a client where uh, they like to get a lot of 3D work done, renders, because they, they incorporate a number of retail groups prior to purchasing a site. So that's taking a feasibility to the next level, which we don't really do a lot, but that can be done. And you, know, you can have a full design done sometimes before the site's even bought. Mm-hmm. So... It really is about providing our clients with the most informed position or allowing them to make the most informed decision. And then what's your view on whether developers should try and find an architect or a designer that focuses on a particular type of product? So whether that might be terrace-style townhouses or... As in... You know, you, like you architects that specialise in, in terrace homes or yes. architects that specialise... Or small... Uh, um, boutique apartment blocks. Yeah, I think you'll find apartments. Yeah, I think you'll find that there are um, there are architects out there that will specialise in apartment developments. There are architects out there that specialise in townhouse developments. There are architects that out there that specialise in commercial projects or retail. Retail's a big one. Hospitality, uh, fit outs and stuff like that. A lot of guys that, that are really special, specialising in that industry. The the medical industry is highly specialised. Um, you don't really go there unless you do that full time. Um, education is also another specialised industry. I think 
most architects, and I say this with caution, most architects do a lot of residential and multi-residential purely because we're in a, in a, in a country where it's growing rapidly and, and the requirement for, for housing in Australia is, is quite high. Um, if you, you know, if you, there is a school of thought out there that there's an oversupply of housing, but there's also a very strong school of thought that there's an undersupply. Um, I think Melbourne's set to be the uh, most populated city in Australia by 2050, and we need people, uh, we need housing to, to support that population growth. So when you talk about being specialised, most architects in this city will be able to do res because there's such a high demand for it and there's so much of it going on. Um, but there are guys that, that specialise. I think if you're going to go with, with someone that, that isn't seen as a specialist, I wouldn't be worried. I think it's just a case of keeping a bit of a closer eye on them, but I think most architects have the capability of, of, of doing multi-res, res uh, work. So what kind of questions or how would you go about filtering out of determining an architect to talk to or to, to work with on a project? I think the feasibility stuff is important. and I, It's not so much a, a range of questions anyone can sit there and rattle off answers. As architects, we're obviously we're a visual medium we produce and being able to sit down and allow them to produce something and talk to the plan about it with the developer should give that, that developer a fairly you know, good understanding of where that architect's at and whether they're capable of doing the project. You know, that they should be able to answer all the, 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 the cues if you're asking them questions, but it's in the, it's in the, in the drawings that they really speak. What are the key questions that you would be suggesting people ask? Well, obviously experience is one. What previous projects have they done? And what, not only architecturally, but, but from a development point of view, what's their experience? How have they treated various projects, various problems? Um, how have they dealt with councils? Obviously, the ability to negotiate with council in today's market is incredibly important. Like I mentioned before, if you can have a project that goes in and out of council in six months, you're in an incredibly strong position. Whereas if it takes 18 months, well, you're already behind the eight ball and you haven't even sold the project yet. So uh, having an architect who's got a good relationship with the councils is important. Obviously, builders is another facet which is incredibly important, having a good, strong relationship with a builder. You often hear... This is the architect? Yes. You often hear horror stories about architects and builders and they both hate each other and there's always fights and this one reckons one thing and the other one thinks another thing. Thank God, you know, touch wood, we've got a pretty good relationship with most of our guys that we've worked with in the last couple of years. And that's really important because, again, it can make it can make that whole experience I was talking about earlier quite sour if you don't get that right. Um, and that's, again, that's just, I think, about not having an ego about, about yourself as you go about the project. There are always things that come up in a, in a, in a project through the build. There, there will be mistakes, you know, whilst we endeavour to make... Yeah, you know, have our work flawless, that there will be mistakes. And being able to sort through those problems quickly, efficiently, without you know, yelling and screaming at anyone is really important. Yeah, look, as a developer, you definitely need to be flexible and yeah. you just have to solve problems along the way because yeah. they pop up. Of course. It's the nature of the industry. And, and, I mean, the amount of times I've heard, oh, the architect didn't, didn't do this, the architect didn't do that, and it's like, well... Just hold on. We've, we've produced a whole a lot of stuff here. There are things that are going to pop up, and there will be things. So it's it's the builders 
got to go about it the right way. Don't be aggressive when they approach the architect with a problem. The architect needs to be mindful that there may be a mistake and cop it on the chin. Yeah. Be accepting that there's an issue and just go, okay, well, that's how we're going to work through this together. Um, and we, we focus on that pretty strongly because it just makes it easier on everyone. Um, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And I don't um, recall raising that when I was talking with you guys about mm. the project. No. So that, that might be a question that people tend to, not to ask the architect. Well, what relationship do you have with builders? Or yeah, yeah. How do you ensure you keep that relationship in a good state? Yeah, I think as long as you, as long as everybody keeps the project you know, as the, the main idea, and not that the ego is getting away at any, at any time. Um, that's the most important thing, for sure. Um, and, that, and that goes, that goes. that's not just during construction, that goes all the way through, you know, even at the start of the project. Um, yeah. I spoke before about, you know, we're talking about design. The architect can't have an, such a, you, know, you can't push your own agenda, it's got to be the project fo- focused. And what's best for the project? What, what, what's going to get the best outcome for the project? That might mean you're not, the architect not designing exactly what they may have envisioned in the first place, but if it gets the developer a higher yield, well, that's where you want to be, or somewhere in between. And what about asking about team members who's going to do what on the project? Is that important, do you think? Yes and no. I think in most, most, most groups will have their own uh, set of consultants that they, they wish to use, um, and they've probably got a, a, a great track record with, the, with those groups. Whether that's an issue or not, I don't know. I don't know. We've got a great team that works with us, and all, all the guys we've worked with are fantastic. So... I don't know whether that's really a big issue in, in unless someone <laughs> brings up a consultant that you don't like personally, you, well, you know, they might not be good. And, but the other thing is too, whilst we have a, a team that we work with, we're happy to work with anyone. So sometimes a developer will come to us and say, we don't care who you use, you, you use your team if you feel more comfortable with them, or sometimes the guys will come and say, no, we want to use this person, this person, and this person. Um... Can you work with them? Of course, of course you can. Um, we have had no. There are instances where you do have some some bad people, uh, but that's no different to any other industry, I suppose. Yeah, everything's not going to go swimmingly all yeah, the time. Yeah, it's, exactly. That's not life. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I've got to ask you the big question. Mm. Architect. Well, I was going to say architect first, drafty, but. Mm. I know there'll be developers out there who will be thinking oh, architects are just expensive drafties and they don't add any additional value to <laughs> the design. Say, I thought you were going to say expensive drama queens in for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not focusing on any individuals here at the moment, Dom. Yeah. But there'll be people out there who have that view that architects are expensive yep. and they don't necessarily add any additional value to the design or to the project. Yep. What's your view on that? Um, that's a tough question. Uh, and I say it's a tough question because there are a lot of good draftsmen out there doing really good work. Uh, I, I know a couple of them, and, and I've recommended to other people to some clients in the past. Don't necessarily think the question's about architects versus draftsmen. It's more a question of who's the best consultant for the project. What an architect does give you is when you approach a project, there's there's two, I guess, big risks. I suppose one is obtaining a planning permit. Well, there's more. There's a few more. One's obtaining a planning permit. Um, two is obviously the documentation of the project and being able to execute that in a in a mindful way or a proper way. 
uh, and three is, is, is developing a product that the client feels comfortable in selling or if it's a house the client feels comfortable in living in um, or if it's an office whatever whatever the end game is if we talk about the planning aspect councils are conscious these days of of, of, of the design quality coming out in, in, in their you know respective municipalities um, there is a councils will always prefer to have an architect uh, as the design consultant on the submission just because they feel as though they're going to get a better product. I'm not saying they necessarily will all the time, I'm just saying that that's the, I guess, perception from a council member. If you're, if you're talking about a, a, a multi-unit development, the developer should be choosing a consultant that's going to give them the best outcome. And that's not just from a yield perspective, it's from a design you know, perspective, what, what's a product going to be. Uh, quite often you will find that a greater quality of design in the project will allow that th there's more potential to get over and above what the standard might be at council. For example, um, if you, if there's, I mean, as I said, mentioned before, res code's only a guide. So there are, at times, opportunities to exceed it. Uh, let, let's say that there is a maximum site coverage on a site of 60%. You know, and uh, let's say there's a height restriction of 9 metres or 10 metres, right? Um, in some cases, and not in all, but in some cases, if you've got a very high quality of design, uh, you may go to 75% or 70%, 75%. Um, you may be able to go three storeys with a fourth storey that's set back on all the top levels that you can't see, which is over and above what the Redsco's guidelines are proposing for this particular site. But council recognises that there is a higher quality of design. They recognise that they're going to get a better product in their in the street, so they see there's a better urban design outcome. And obviously, the developer gets more yield. They've got you know an extra half level. They've got some extra area on 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 the site, which might in turn result in an additional one or two, three, ten. I don't know, depending on how big it is or whatever it is. And that's that's something that's really important. Um, it's really about pushing boundaries, and you can only do that through design. If you turn up to council and you know, have something that's pretty crappy and just one doesn't look good and isn't presented properly, uh, just council will just go, no, not, not interested. But if you can turn up with a, a really nice, neat package, some really great diagrams that communicate all the ideas in it, um, some example, uh, sort of a written dialogue of, of what you're proposing some really neat 3D uh, visual renders uh, that, that, that show what the project in its what it's going to look like, you know, people moving through it, living in it. So you, you really make it an exciting and you know, mouth-watering proposition for the council, get them engaged in it, and then all of a sudden things, things can start to happen for you. I may be talking about it at kind of a suburban level, but that goes right up to into you know, larger developments. An example, we did a project down in, in um, Abbotsford and I think the height limit was six storeys. Which is in a city in Melbourne for uh, yeah, for those Melbourne listeners. We went in with a, a 12 storey scheme, which was six levels above the recommendation. Now that got got um, refused the council, but we went to VCAT. Now we ended up with 10 levels and council saw that as uh, well, the VCAT member draw the conclusion that, that it was a great design and therefore 
merit should be given. Um, and, and that was through additional height. So to come back to your original question about, you know, using an architect or drafty or, you know, which consultant, you might, as I change it around a little bit, you really have to find a consultant that I think has a high quality design in their work. Because if, if you do and you run with that person, then, they can, then you can potentially use design. And not always, it doesn't always work, but you can potentially use design to get you additional, you know, additional yield, additional area, which is obviously going to make the development more profitable, hopefully. Um, that also, just going back a step, when you talk about product and you go into the market, it's important having a good-looking building. If you can't go to the market with some sexy renders and some, some great you know, usable floor plans, you might be in strife. Quite often we'll pick up a project that's got an existing permit and that you know, you'll see 2.7, 2.6 metre wide bedrooms and they're just not, you don't, you can't do that. I don't believe that's a that's a viable product in today's market. So, you know, the, the market's a bit more savvy these days, a bit more sophisticated. They know what they want and, and what's expected. So having the right plan is really important. We all know that I think everything's getting smaller, so design is becoming more important. And again, that comes back to the consultant and ensuring you've got a consultant that's going to, to work hard to deliver the right product. And I've got a view that... Your local drafty in a particular council that works across certain areas with certain authorities or councils, whatever it is, in your local area, I've got this view that they don't rock the boat for you as much as, say, an architect who's really focused on you as a client and getting an outcome would with council. That's Mm -hmm. just my view. I don't think they would go in as hard as an architect would because they've got six, seven, eight, ten other clients in with council and they don't want to upset council and and Uh, deal with them on these other ones. That's just my view. I I don't know about the politics of what you're talking about. It's probably something a little bit different. Um, There's plenty of architects out there that don't want to rock the boat either. Um, I I really don't think it's an argument of, of, of architects versus draftsmen. It's an argument of who is going to provide you with the best service um, in terms of design? So who's going to work their bums off to create a design outcome that may be pushing boundaries, that, that may be over and above what they typically do, but is ultimately the, the, gives you the best hope in, in delivering the highest return. Um, so if you want to categorise them as, as architect versus draftsman, then go for it. Um, I'm not willing to do that because I think there's pretty good drafters out there that do the same thing. And there's plenty of bad architects that don't do, do the, you know, that are acting in the, in the way you're suggesting is a, a poor way to go. So I think it's more about just finding out the architect and or finding the designer, the right designer for you, and, and perhaps looking through their previous work and their previous experience and maybe discussing, you know, why did they do this? Why did they do that? What, what led them to, to, you know, create this particular design outcome? And maybe ask them, what was that over and above? What was expected on that site? Because it can often... I mean, that, that's that's where the value is. You know, if you, if you go and buy a site that's worth... Let, let's say, for argument's sake, <clears throat> there's a site that's... Let's say you, one would assume you can get uh, 12 townhouses on there, for argument's sake. Right? And let's say... And I'm just hypothetical. Let's say, you know, just to keep it simple, that it's 100... You know, it's based on 100,000 per townhouse on that site. So you, the value of the land's one point. $2 million. If, let's say, you go to designer one, designer two, 
And designer one will give you 12 townhouses, and designer two comes back with 20, for argument's sake. Now, assuming they're all similar sizes, but you've been, you've been, a go, you've been able to go about it a different way, and let's assume, for the argument of this discussion, that they both get permits. Um, the value of the land hasn't changed with the 12 townhouse scheme. It's still worth 1.2, 1.3. Maybe, maybe a bit more because there's certainty in, in the permit. But the one the 20 is obviously worth a lot more because if you're basing it on similar you know, returns, you're talking about something that's worth 2 million. Now, we, we often talk about value and how it's pretty hard for, to quantify design in our industry. Um, and I think a lot of architects have perhaps struggled with how you, know, how you quantify what you do. Um, that, that building over there might look good to you, but I might think it's horrible. So do we value, how do we value it? You can't. But when it comes to development, you can, because these are real, these are real numbers. You know, this scheme returned you an additional 100000 This scheme returned you an additional 800000 And all of a sudden, the value of design starts to you know, become quite evident. Yeah, that, and it's a question I often ponder as well. How much does the design influence the uh, speed of sale mm. or the buyer's decision to choose your product over something else? Yep. It's very hard to quantify that without going out and specifically asking buyers why they chose it. Yeah. But it, has to, it definitely plays a role. Mm. You've got a good-looking building over here versus a... Yep. Um, standard, a standard building over a typical, there. A typical residential development, and there's nothing wrong with those. No, and, there's a, and there's a place for them. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah. But quantifying that decision by the person, the buyer would go, well, I'm going over there with the nice building yeah. rather than sticking to the ordinary building. But so I want to live somewhere that yeah. looks a bit different and looks great. Yeah. Yep. And there's a lot of, but there's a lot of people that also prefer to live in 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 the you know, traditional you know, archetype, I suppose. Um, it's really a subjective thing. But and this is my point. You're talking about you know, typical townhouses versus, say, something more contemporary. And I'm saying leave that argument to the side when it comes to design. I mean, obviously, it's something to discuss. But when you talk about value, that, that's kind of irrelevant. The, re- the relevance is what, what the yield and what you can get through council because the value of the land... The, the land doesn't change, but all of a sudden you've got a permit. One permit gives you 12 townhouses or 13, and the other one gives you 18 to 20... Which which one, which which block of land's worth more? Obviously, the one with more on it. And the way the land, that nothing's happened on the land. The only the only difference is is design, and that design can then, you know, you can start to see how the design can play a role in increasing value, and that's where you know, and, and it works both ways. You can decrease land by doing that too. But I think that's where the value of design is is quite tangible, and quite visible. It's real. Why people choose properties is a whole other another discussion, and, and quite often the reasons for choosing a property may have nothing to do with architecture or design. It might be they just like that street, yeah. So, or proximity to a school or you know, freeways, access, public transport, who knows? So, when you first look at a possible site for development, or a developer brings you a site and says we're looking at this, yep. what are the things that you start immediately thinking about? Um, look, zoning is the number one thing. Zoning is the the planning zoning and, and what you can and can't do with that site, you know, it'll tell us whether we can go two storeys, four storeys, ten storeys. They'll tell us the, what maximum site coverage we've got to play with. Um, you know, whether there's any vegetation overlays, 
you know, there's a heritage overlay, it's often a big one that plays a major part in development. Um, so the, the planning overlays is probably the number one thing to begin with. I think any developers out there is looking for science, they should be you know, at the same time looking at what the zoning, every time they think they've got one, have a look at the zoning because that's the first thing I'll do and I'll be like, oh, well, you can't really do much here or, you know, actually, you're only, you can only subdivide the land into two so you can't really do much. Um, so that's the, the number one thing. The second part of the second one is obviously what surrounds you, um, both kind of immediately in the immediate area and, and secondary. Um, so what are your neighbours doing? Where are their private open spaces? How do you impact them? Where are their north facing windows? Uh, what what's your access like to the site? Do you have a secondary access point from the rear or you know, are you coming off a main road or all these things become critical? And then obviously this, the second part of that is what's the greater context? You know, so access to public transport, access, access to parklands and you know, waterways, um, all those type of things become all other things. Activity centres, you know, how, how close they are you know, to, to an area where there is kind of more significant development. And you may already be in that area, so that leads itself to, or lends itself to, to greater development potential. And I've just found out that context is very important. Mm-hmm. I had a colleague who had an application knocked back by mm-hmm. council, which was in a high-density or a medium-density zone. Uh, council knocked it back. They went to the planning tribunal. You know ask me and the planning that. tribunal knocked it back. Yeah. And their primary reason was context, even mm-hmm. though it was clearly within this zone that was marked mm-hmm. for higher intensity development. Yep. Because of the street that it was on with lower density development, it got knocked back and there was that yeah. context. Yeah. Just something that I probably wouldn't have given as much weight to. Yeah, perhaps. well, the council has their local planning policies in place and that they'll look at areas and they'll say, they'll determine that they want a specific area to, to hold high density development. Uh, problem is, is if you don't get a permit with council, VCAP will look at it from a more holistic point of view. Um, they'll acknowledge the fact that council have zoned it in a higher you know, density area, but VCAT will look at it and say, well, sure, but is it ready for it? Uh, and if you're talking about a, a street that's all single single homes, you know, offer not on a main road, well, is that site really a higher, you know, set for higher density development? It's probably not. Um, and now I don't know anything about this development that you're, you're talking about. I haven't seen the drawings. I don't know where it is or what the context is. So I can't comment on that one specifically. But when you are looking at the zoning, you need to... And that's why I said zoning first, but then you've got to look at the context as well. Because regardless of, of, of the zoning, there are certain things you can't do. Um, yeah, because I would have looked at that and gone, zone, this particular zone, yep. they're encouraging higher density of development. Great. Yep. We should be able to. You'd be able to get this type of development mm. through a higher density. Yeah, well, but no, it's it's not black well, and white. I guess look, is the point well, I'm making, which yeah. is frustrating. And, look, and this is something that frustrates us all the time. That the call it the general residential zone, which is common throughout Victoria, uh, that that has typically a, a nine metre height limit. Now, if I said to you, you've got a nine metre height limit, one would expect that you can go three storeys on that site, but you can't. Well, you can. But not always. So if you've got a street that's all single level, you know, single level dwellings, it's highly likely that council will only allow you to go to two levels, and that's one above what the existing character is. 
even though the, the policies might permit you to go three levels, the context really does inform whether you can or you can't. So the context is incredibly important. It's not just about the zoning. It's not just, well, if they say I can go this high, then you, you can go, it doesn't work like that. Are they, are they going to have a crack at another scheme or...? They're considering their options at the moment, mm. but it was a good wake-up call for me. Yeah. So, the, tell us, was it a townhouse project or...? Yeah, it was a townhouse project, sort of terrace-style townhouses yep. on a 2,200-square-metre block. So it's quite big, yeah. Big block, well below the threshold mm. density that had been identified by council in one of their strategy documents. So mm-hmm. it kind of seemed to tick all the boxes, mm. but no... Interesting. Yeah. I just uh, I just made the point just around. I would have thought that was a yep. lay down and, is there that you would be able to get yeah. that one through. Look, they may they may have ran into a conservative member at VCAT. They may have ran into a planner who yeah, perhaps is again more conservative. Don't know. Yeah. Um, councils can be frustrating to work with at times because you it can sometimes depend on the planner. Okay. Obviously, it depends on whether you get objectives or not. There's a number of determining factors that can that can that change a, the outcome of a project quite significantly um, without the actual project changing. So yeah, well, that's I think that's what happened with this one. The locals, the neighbours, did object yep. quite vociferously, and mm-hmm. council obviously took that into account and then sort of backed off their initial support. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's quite a lot of variables yeah. going into the planning application and the planning phase. Mm-hmm. So you're right. Once you do get that planning permit, you've got a degree of certainty. And oh, well, then that's the, the biggest risk, in, in my opinion, um, is planning. I mean, if you go and buy a site and you base your numbers on getting 10 tenders, as you'd want to be getting 10, um, if you can get 12, then brilliant, great. If you get eight, you, you might be in a bit of trouble. So, and, and the sad thing is, if you do get eight, and this is the thing that, that irks me a little bit, is if you do get eight, what happens then is, to make it work, you've got to build a substandard product to get your money back. So what often happens is you end up building crap or, you know, and then selling crap and then the, these people, you know, people buy them and they're living in, in, in something that perhaps would have been a bit nicer if council allowed us to get a bit more on there. So that's the frustrating thing, I think, from our point of view. We've got one at the moment with a similar argument I was talking about. It's going to be heading into VCAT where we're, we're pushing for three levels. It's permissible, it's opposite a park. Uh, we've got three levels, two level townhouses, three level ones, as I said, look over a park. They don't affect anybody. Um, it's actually the perfect spot for a, th- a three level townhouse. The living areas have, have got a balcony that overlooks the park. Above that, we have a master bedroom with their own private terrace that overlooks the park. Now, that, that quality of townhouse isn't really... You don't see that in the area that we're doing this. And it would be something a bit nicer. Now, we could be forced into a position where they all become two storeys. Um, the developer will help you spend less money on them. And we'll, we're going to get an inferior product. And I think that would be a real, a real shame. So anyway, hopefully common sense prevails, but you never know. <laughs> no. Sense and common are not two yeah. words. I think though. that's a big thing that, that the councils and VCAT need to be conscious of, and that is... The quality of the product needs to be considered. You know, if you've got a product that, if you've got a, a, a house that tenants has got access to natural light, to all its bedrooms, you know, nice high big windows, nice two point seven meter high ceilings and living spaces, 
you know, think about the product. It's less about sometimes um, you know, how high. We, often, we always talk about height. We, we don't often talk about quality. Yeah, it's a good point. I think this is where you, the difference between a good designer and an average designer, mm. you just get those little one percenters yep. along the way yep. that begin to add up over time and as your planning application builds. Because yep. I've seen people get into trouble with substandard design, basically, mm-hmm. and then when they have to try and justify it, you can't. they can't. And it falls over, yep. and they've lost time. They've spent money on consultants, all sorts of stuff. Mm. Whereas if they invested a bit more money, yeah, well, start, it comes back to one of they you. Would have, they would have, yeah. they may have got it through. Yeah, it comes back to one of your questions earlier uh, regarding who do you choose. And I think you, you mentioned that architects are more expensive, so uh, than, than a draftsman, as you as you said. Extra money up front will probably, oh, sometimes, hopefully you'd like to think would save you time at planning and will return you a better product, which is going to return you a higher selling price. So that extra small amount at the front might result in significant savings in, in terms of time and then potentially more profits through the sales period. So, yes, you, you might, you, some, some might look at it as a greater investment at the front, but I think if... Again, it comes back to how do you value what you do. You know, I'd like to think that we can nail those two things that I mentioned and therefore the client's in a better position. You've worked with a lot of developers over the years. What mistakes do you see them making? Well, one I just mentioned. I think if you, you skimp early on on a consultant's, I think you may get yourself in trouble in the long run. Uh, even if you just take architecture out of it for the time being, let's say you choose an engineer. Let's say the engineer is five grand cheaper than the next one, for argument's sake. Now, the more expensive engineer may work a bit harder to find a better design solution for the structure. That might result in a $50,000 savings in steel. And that's quite a substantial difference. You know, and that, that's all because, you know, we're talking about the five grand difference at, at the front. Um, they're big mistakes. If you go with a substandard designer, you might be stuck in council for 18 months. Um, we did have a case where uh, one guy was approached us and, and he'd been using a, an architect that had been moonlighting at home whilst he was working for another group. And he was complaining that he, his planning application for a house had been in planning for 18 to 24 months nearly. And uh, he didn't end up going with us due to, to fees, but we're kind of like, well, there's the probably the problem. It's just using someone that's probably not putting the right time and effort into into the project, and then that's having a, a negative outcome at planning, which is going to upset the whole project. So little things like that. I think consultants is really important. I think doing your due diligence. I think having chat to agents and working out what your product is, who your market is, who, who's your target audience is really important. You know, are you going to investors or are you going to own occupiers? Because that really does inform how you really approach the project from a design sense. So um, just getting all your ducks in line at the start of the project is really important and then hopefully everything should just flow on quite nicely. Yeah, so they're the major ones I'd say from, from my point of view. Obviously getting your pricing right is really important. Um, 
if you're going if you're trying to sell something that's more expensive than not, you're probably going to fall over. Um, I think marketing is the other the other important one. Um, spending money on a really tight marketing campaign is critical because obviously that's what's selling the project. Go and get go and spend money on the good renders. Get the interiors team to develop up really tight interiors. They're the main things, I think. And, and, and listen to the consultants. They're the ones that know what they're doing in that particular industry. So if you can trust them, I think everything should move a bit more smoothly. Yeah, look, the question of trust is obviously a big one with your team because yeah. if you've got that trust, then you can allow them to do their job. Yes, if you don't have sit that back trust, and relax. You're sort of always wondering whether you're getting the right advice or mm. are you just getting the advice that's the easiest for the yep. consultant yep. so they can just get the job done as quickly as yeah, possible well, and off their debts. And, and, and often that, um, I've been talking about this with my business partner a lot recently. You know, you know, we, we often have negotiate with our clients in terms of fees and it gets to a point where you, you kind of have to say, look, if I reduce it any further, this is going to impact on your project. Now, I would like to be able to give it the right time that it needs to deliver the right product. But what happens is sometimes you get you can get negotiated down to a point where, and this this might be this is for everyone. I'm not talking just for for ourselves. Where there may not be a lot of money in it, so it comes to just saying whatever they want just because they need to get this project off the off the table. That does happen, which I think is not great, and I think. Consultants should do that, but that's a reality. Um, well, so it's, it's, it creates resentment. Yeah, I think you need to be aware of that as a not just as a developer, but just whenever you're negotiating with people, mm. is this concept of fair exchange. Yeah, and then what is well, it that they're well, delivering, and yeah. what are you paying for? And exactly. If you screw them down below yeah. what they think they're and worth, what, yeah. there's going to be ongoing, lingering resentment that will present somewhere. Yeah. In some way, and, and I think, for, for, from our perspective, we tend to negotiate more on scope as opposed to fees. So rather than saying, "Okay, we can do it cheaper," it's more a case of, uh, "Well, what can we eliminate from the fees?" That means you know you might take on some of the role, some of these roles, or you might go to, you might take out a certain component and expect someone else to do it. So there are ways of doing it. So just to ensure that the product is still being maintained quality of service is still being maintained but I think that's that's something that sometimes people fail to, to recognise. Obviously everyone wants everything at an affordable rate right? everyone's out there trying to, to make the most. So we, we understand that but um, if if the quality of service is being dropped well then they're not getting what, they're, what they really want I think. Yeah. I think that's a really good point for developers to consider when they're talking to architects it's to ask that question about mm. scope perhaps, yeah. rather than just yeah. decrease your fees. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, what can we change? What can you do less of, perhaps, or what can I do more of just yeah. to try and get to a level yeah. that everyone's happy with? Yep. yep. Um, and because you know, whenever anyone asks us for a fee, we provide a full services package. So we, what we, we offer is project inception to handover and, and full kind of management right through. Now, not everyone requires that. We're doing a fair bit of work with some builders, you know, their own houses or their own little developments, and you know, they, they don't need a full set of documentation drawings because they know how to build it. So what we provide is a building permit package, which is a fair bit less, um, almost half, 
and that allows them to get what they want, then they can go and build it. They've, you know, they've saved significant fees. We even have one guy that didn't want any interiors because he said, well, I'm just going to get things I've done and other projects, I'm just going to replicate them myself so I don't need it. Um, so he was able to get an architectural product for quite a fair bit cheaper just because he was able to eliminate the scope for us, which we're happy to do. But not everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone builders. Not everyone has access to interior projects or interior design elements. Yeah, it's a good idea. Don't just yeah. look at the bottom line for yeah. the, of the fee proposal and go yes or no. Yeah, yeah. Look a little bit deeper and yeah. talk to the architect or the, the designer and find out where there's some middle ground, maybe. One of the funny ones is that the contract administration component of a project, or the construction phase services, we often get asked, what is, what is that? Why do I need that? Um, and it's actually an incredibly important part of the project. For those listening who don't know, it's, it's where you, you've got the client, the client and the builder will have a contract, a building contract, and the architect will typically, yeah, they get an architect or a project manager to manage that process. Um, and they have to administer the contract. They ensure that the, the builder's being paid, and we ensure that the builder's building essentially what's on the drawings and, and they're not overquoting for things that aren't on site. And this is a really important part of the project and a lot of people that don't understand that will often say, oh, well, I don't need that and I'll take it out. Many times it's come back and come back in and they've said, and we've got some of our builders that say, well, we won't do it unless the architect's engaged to administer because the builder doesn't want to talk to someone who doesn't know anything about the project or the detail of the project. So, yeah, look, I can certainly attest to the value of having an architect do that because yes. we're currently having that done for us at the moment and I would be sinking <laughs> in the queries yeah. that are coming yeah. through from the builder yeah. related to the yeah. project. And they're, and, they're, and they're not, I mean, you might think that they're queries that should have been, and it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this chat, is you, you can't document absolutely everything. It's just not feasible. So there are often things that come up through the building process where the architect needs to be, you know, on, on deck. They're, they're with the ability to answer questions when required, and I think that's really important. Yeah, and some of them you just don't know what the answer is. No, so. until, until something happens or they're getting through it, and that's just part of the process. Yeah, I know we've had questions around depth levels for water retention systems. Mm. Well, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Call the architect. Yeah, call the architect. And then they just go, yeah, it's X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. Solved. Yeah. And, and we've got all the drawings here, so it's a matter of just referring to them. We know what we're looking for. You can sort something out in you know, 20 minutes as opposed to potentially someone who hasn't had that experience, hasn't been involved in the drawing of, of you know, what the documentation process, and they take them a day. Now, if you add that up over the life of the project... You're talking about months. Yeah. And it's time that you can then be focused on finding the next deal yep. or exactly. solving other exactly. problems. Yep. yep. So that's a really important part of a project that often gets lost because if, if you don't have a lot of experience in the game, well, you probably see an architect as, well, they just do drawing. They just produce a set of drawings for council and for building, and that's kind of it. It's, I'd like to think it's a little bit more... What one tip do you have for developers so they can take their developing to the next level? It's a good question, and I think the quality of product, as I've mentioned a few times, is really important. Um, I know there's a few developers out there, I remember catching up with 
Paul Fridman from uh, Fruit Corp a couple of years ago, and he mentioned that he he spends about ten to fifteen percent more on his interiors in his projects right, than than say a typical developer would. That's probably through both design and quality of finishes and whatnot. And that's because um, in a lot of his projects, he gets a lot of return buyers. I think that's really important. Um, again, quality of design. I keep mentioning quality of design. It's really, really important. If you can set up a portfolio of work as a developer that, that is of good quality, you can set up potentially a system of return buyers. And if you've got... You know, if you're embarking on a new project of, I don't know, 50 townhouses and you can sell 25 of them to people that are in other developments that you've done, your job's half done. You know, and that, 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 that flows on and on and on and on and on. So quality of project is really important. The second, the second reason why quality of project is really important, if, from a council perspective, if you've got projects that look great being developed, they're operating you know, in a local area and everyone's talking about how great that development is. The next project that you go in with the same design team, same developer, same architect, similar product, do you think they're going to be look at it favourably? Of course they are. So you, you, your risk component is, is getting smaller at council and then obviously in the sales. So quality of product, I, I think spend the money, get it right, get the product right, market it right. Because it'll, it'll make things easier in the long run. Great tip, and 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 it's a better outcome for the community, which is really important. It's not just about the developer. I think if we if we can ensure that what we're putting out there is a benefit to everybody, then again, it's a it's a better outcome. Yeah, I like that idea because I think that's really important when you can put your hand on your heart and go, "We really are." adding value to yeah. the community. Yeah. The design fabric of the area is actually being enhanced by the product that we're yep. putting out there. Yep. I think there's a real long-term value to yep. that. Not yep. just economic, yep. but also community value. Yeah, and look, I was talking to one of our urban designers the other day about apartment sizes. Everyone's, you know, it's a hot topic at the moment, they're too small, you know, whatever, we have to, I think we have to recognise that it's not the size that's important. It's how it's designed. Um, if you do have a, a sub-50 square metre apartment, what, what that does is it allows either first-time investor or a first-time buyer that perhaps can't afford the million-dollar house, but they can afford the half-million-dollar apartment, but all of a sudden it gets them in the market. So, so those apartments play a, a pivotal role... I, I, don't necessarily believe that it's just the case of going nothing, anything less than 50 square metres is off the table. No, that needs to be there because it, it provides an incredibly important role um, in the community. But how it's designed, that's that's the important part. If you can get it right, then all of a sudden you can get you can provide a really neat, cool studio apartment that someone can live in and, and really enjoy their time in there and then bring it. Why, why not have them? If it's affordable as well affordable being the, the number one thing alright Don we might leave it there cool thank you very much for being on the property developer podcast thank you for having me well there you have it a far reaching discussion on design and property developing with a gun architect I hope you picked up some useful tips and ideas because I thought we unearthed a couple of nuggets of gold 
There's a few things I would definitely suggest to any developer looking to find a new designer for their next project. And they are, one, see if the designer will do a quick feasibility for you. This will help you establish if they understand the market you are working in. They may charge a small fee for this, but I think it would be worth it to determine what they think they can get on the site and how they assess the local market. It will also give you a bit of an idea of what it would be like to work with the designer. Two, ask the architect how they manage relationships with builders. This is a great question because the builder is so important and the relationship between the architect and builder is critical to getting the build done as quickly and efficiently as possible. So, ask how do they ensure they stay on good terms? Even ask to speak with a couple of the builders they are currently working with. Give them a call and I'm pretty sure they'll tell you how they see it. Three, find a designer who has a high quality of design in their work. It is better to find a designer who has a history of producing high quality work than trying to push someone to come up with a better design. Most designers should be able to provide plenty of visual examples of what they have done. Importantly, Dom suggested you ask whether the end result was over and above the developer's expectations or if it was less. Quality of product is really important, so it is prudent not to mess about on it. What would happen if you spent 10 to 15% more on your design? Would you get your permit faster? Would you sell quicker? Would you get an extra 10 to 20% on your end sale price? I reckon that initial investment would be worth it. Four, negotiate on scope, not on fees. Don't just focus on the lowest cost when assessing design proposals. I like the idea of negotiating around scope rather than simply lowest cost. As I mentioned, if you screw people down too far, it will foster resentment, which will show up somewhere along the line. So discuss with the architect or designer how the fee structure could be different if the scope shifted and see what you could do or get someone else to do. And remember, you may save time and ultimately money by investing upfront in great design from a good designer. So there you have some pretty valuable tips and ideas that could save you a lot of time and money and deliver higher returns. If you'd like to find out more about Sarah Stribley Architects, you can check out their website at sarahstribley.com. That wraps up another show. Head over to iTunes for a review if you've got some value from this episode or stop by the Property Developer Podcast website for more developing gold. And until next time, may all your developments look sweet and sell fast. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.